And Father, we just pray as we open your word that once again we will see the beauty of our Lord. And so, Father, just display yourself in a very real and tangible way that, Lord, I pray as we leave this place that we would become more like our Lord and Savior, that, Father, we would reflect your glory to all who you bring into our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor? Greetings. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. We'll be picking up at verse 1. Last week, we did the whole chapter of chapter 7, and today, we're going to try it again. Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 1, and as always, if you arrived here without a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along. If there's anybody here that needs a Bible, lift your hand, and the ushers will bring one to you. Who needs a Bible? You've got somebody behind you as well, Scott. Hebrews chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Keep in mind that this is a believer writing in Rome to believing Jews in Jerusalem. Starting chapter 8, verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, the minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord created and not man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who served the copy the shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he's obtained a new excellent ministry as much as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because the finding... Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, but I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And that he says in new covenant... He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so, Father, we just thank you that the new, as it has come from you, is simply better. And we rejoice in this new covenant that we have 
faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished upon the cross. And so, Father, I pray that we would rejoice in your goodness and your graciousness as we dig back into your word. One more time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Now, last week, we saw this element of maturity in chapter 7 as we looked at Melchizedek and who he was. We saw that there were two orders of priests to the God Most High. There was the priest in the order of Melchizedek and the priesthood to the order of Aaron. And even though Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of both, we saw that the order of Melchizedek was better. The writer of Hebrews presented it in a way that there was absolutely no doubt. As a matter of fact, that's what he's been doing in a very orderly, methodical manner, keeping in mind that this writer, this unknown writer, is writing to the Jewish mind. And the Jews have held on to their Old Testament ways that have been seasoned with their traditions that really have rendered the Word of God of no effect. So in this letter, the Lord has been presenting in this methodical way that when it comes to prophets, when it comes to angels, when it comes to Moses or even the priesthood, Jesus is better than all. Now with all the information presented in chapter 7, not wanting the reader to get lost in all that was presented, the writer is focusing now as he starts here in verse 1 of chapter 8, his main point. Again, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. We, we've got this ultimate high priest. All these other guys were just simply men and they even lived amongst you. But now we have this great high priest, this one who represents us to God and God to us, and he's seated next to the Father in the heavens. And so two main points here as we start is his seat and his sanctuary. So first concerning his seat, well, if you were given the privilege to peek into the tabernacle, you'd see quite a bit of furniture that was necessary because it was appointed to be there by God. But the one thing that you would notice, there's only one chair. There's only one place that a person could sit, and, well, none of us, and even none of them are really worthy to sit in that chair. That chair is the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. It's the place where the judge sits. But there would be no other chair possible because the work of atonement before the judge is never finished. And so you've got that picture. There's the mercy seat of the tabernacle and the idea this is the place where God is seated. The judge is seated. And so the priests are constantly working because they're constantly trying to cover the sins of the people. A never-ending work. They're People are perpetually sinning, so the priests are continually working. There is no seat that is really possible if you think about it in the temple because there's no break that can possibly be taken. Now, myself, I like to see a completed project. When I do something, I like to bring it to the end, and I like to, I like to gaze upon it. When I was an electrician, when I would wire a restaurant or whatever it might be, I would like to look at the conduit and all the things that we had spent so much time planning and then doing before they covered it all up with drywall. I did restaurants in the area. We did the remodel on Spunky Steer, and every once in a while when I take my family there, I, tell, I hung those lights. 
I remember when we did this, and they're like, not again. There's, I was driving down um, Mariloma, I don't remember, I think it's Mariloma and Etiwanda, wherever it might be. There's a jack-in-the-box that I built from the ground up. I did the electrical on the ground up. And then every once in a while, McDonald's that I worked in, doing the electrical there. And you just see these things, and they're just reminders of the work that you did. I'm a pastor. I've got over 2,000 Bible studies since we've started the church able to glean off of those. And in my house, about a year ago, we redid our shower, and I just enjoyed going in that shower and just looking at this job well done and that it hasn't leaked yet, and that's a good thing. But as far as a priest, consider the frustration. The sin just keeps on coming. And they can't even blame the people because they've got to deal with their own sin that never stops as well. And so here we have this holy God that desires to dwell amongst us in this tabernacle, but in order to continue on in this relationship, our sin has to be covered, so the sacrifice has to be offered. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, it says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. I mean, how would you like your job? And I know that there's people that even have jobs today as far as a butcher, but to constantly having to be killing these lambs or these bulls or these doves, whatever they might be, and bleeding them out and then offering them as a sacrifice, and that was your job, and you'd be constantly reminded that because I'm a sinner, this innocent thing needed to die. Remember, Adam and Eve pointed this out so many times, but death had yet to enter in, and then they sinned. And they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, but that wouldn't do. And so God says, get two lambs. And I would imagine, or can you imagine, the sheer terror as they would see these lambs, seeing for the very first time death, and even understanding of the concept of death for the first time, and how ugly and how brutal that had to be. And as God gave them the proper covering of lambskins, they realized that those innocent lambs had to die because of them. So what the Levitical priest couldn't accomplish, Jesus did, and then he sat down. This was a concept presented at the beginning of this letter of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3, when he had by himself purged our sins. That means done away, not covering our sins, but doing away with our sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What was Jesus' last words from the cross? It's finished. Now, we look at that and we think God's plan for salvation is finished, but think about how far back that goes. That goes from the foundation of the world. It goes from that very first sin in Genesis chapter 3. It covers all the sacrifices that were made in the temple. And then finally at the cross, it is finished. And the good news to you and I in Christ for salvation, all that could be done was accomplished by him, that which we could never do. Matter of fact, that's part of the reason for the perpetual sacrifice, and that man was never going to be able to accomplish that goal of right standing with God. So not for salvation, but because of salvation, we read our Bibles, we pray, we worship, we gather together. But as far as the finished work on the cross, it was accomplished accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ through his divine power. And because of that, it was good that one time for all, forever. And because of that, we rejoice. But what keeps going on for the one who has no trust in his rest, there's more work. 
They're just, if you do not trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you're having to work. And that's what the Jews are, are, are doing in Jerusalem. And that's the, the division that has to exist in the Jewish believers. We've been raised with this stuff. And now all of a sudden they're saying that the sacrifice was made once and for all. Now keep in mind, it's just a matter of years before the priests are going to be killed and the temple destroyed by Rome. And so it's going to be impossible for them to make sacrifice. You have to have the priest, and you have to have the temple, and it has to be in Jerusalem. And so God has prepared them through the prophet, through the sending of the son, but now through this epistle as well, that these things are no longer necessary. I can relate to that in my Catholic upbringing. It was all about doing this and doing that and following these rules and following these regulations, And then I came to this church that I heard the word of God preached, and I was set free from all of that stuff. I was set free from the doing of these things in order to obtain some kind of righteous standing before a holy God, something, again, that we could never accomplish. Matter of fact, there was the day of my salvation, and then coming to a church, again, that just preached the word of God, and having that feeling, still supposed to be back at the other place? Am I still supposed to be going through all of those routines? No, as far as work for salvation, the work by Christ has been done. Notice where he is sitting. Now, this is important, especially, again, keep in mind, this is to the Jewish mind. He's seated at the right hand of the throne. Now, most people would just say the right hand is a position of honor and go on, but really, seated on either side is a position of honor. But what does it mean for him to be seated at the right hand of the Lord or the the Father? Well, In the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is the supreme court, if you will, of Israel, there was 70 members of the Sanhedrin. When they were seated in judgment, there would be two scribes. One scribe would be seated on the right, and the other scribe would be seated on the left. The scribe on the left, he would be responsible for writing all the condemnations. The scribe on the right, he would be responsible for writing acquittals. And so that just kind of makes sense to the Jewish mind. Here's the grace of God, and the Lord is representing us. He, he, he's the mediator of this better covenant. And Lord, our sins have been forgiven, and we have been set free. And so they have this picture of the ultimate judge, but also the Lord Jesus Christ rightly represented us, seated at the right hand of the Father. Matthew used this illustration as well in Matthew chapter 25, verses 32 through 33. It says, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, those who are destined for eternity with the Lord, but the goats on his left, those who are destined for destruction. And an interesting sidebar, I pointed this out before, but just bear with me if you've heard it. There's two times in the scriptures that we see the Lord Jesus Christ rising up from that seat. First of all, is in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. It says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth from the earth. And so he stood. Keep in mind what's going on. Who is worthy to take the title deed of the earth? 
John's to the point of tears because he doesn't see anybody who's worthy and then rises up this lamb as if, as if it had been slain. He was described as having overcome and it's he who is worthy to take possession of the earth and those who are in the earth. And so when it comes time, judgments on the horizon, Christ stands up for us. But the Bible does speak of another time if you want to turn over to the book of Acts chapter 7. There's this man, Stephen, and Stephen has been witnessing for the Lord. He's before the Jewish leaders, and in Acts chapter 7, verse 54, it says, when they heard these things, now he's speaking the word of God and he's convicting them, it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. That means they were convicted. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, that's exactly what has happened in these men's hearts. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed their teeth at them. It's kind of like they're growling at them. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing. He's repeating this for us to see this at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran with him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. There's Jesus Christ seated at the right hand, ever living to make intercession, but now it comes time to receive his saints unto himself. And the idea here is, is when the saints come home, the Lord rises to receive them. We just had a saint of ours go to be with the Lord this past week. Nora Stiles. Nora's been dealing with stomach cancer for quite a while and suffering a lot, but still maintaining her joy and looking forward to that time in Christ. And Jesus, Jesus stood to receive her on that day, receive her on that day that she went home to be with him. We're going to be having the funeral here on the 19th. There will be some more information that is giving on that. And so we look at his seat, but also... Apart from his seat, we also see his sanctuary. Look at verse 2, back in chapter 8 of Hebrews. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. What are our sanctuaries today? Well, apart from the Lord, maybe the reading of a good book I've come to enjoy. I wasn't much of a reader when we first got married, my wife and I but I can really enjoy a good book now. Just sit down and allow it to consume you. Fishing, vacation, home, being with family, wherever it is that you find rest and rejuvenation. But there's a problem with men's sanctuaries. Remember the sanctuary, if you were with us, that we used to have some 12, 14 years ago, whatever it was? It was over there on Riverside Drive where our church used to be located. Guess what? One day I drove by there and it was in shambles. They bulldozed it. And so if if all of your hope was in that sanctuary, it went away. If all of your hope's in this sanctuary, one day this is going to away. It's all going to burn. And even that tabernacle that Moses built, yes, God did inhabit it, but where's it at today? It's gone. And and if your hope's even in this temple that the Jews are thinking, this is going to last forever, it was destroyed as well. But now we've got something better. Minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, 
and not man. This is the true tabernacle. The idea was that although the previous was tangible and touchable, it was a copy or it was a shadow of that which was to come. And so God in the book of Exodus chapter 25 and on, he's given Moses specific instruction. Moses is to build each piece of furniture exactly according to God's specifications, all the way through to the curtains that were hung and the rings that were put to hold the curtains up, all of these details. Why? Because it was to be a picture of God's dwelling place in heaven. And so at the end of the book of Exodus, Moses causes all these things to be built, It's set there. They dedicate it to the Lord. And I know if I was Moses, my heart would be beating out of its chest. I I, I hope that this is acceptable. There were times, again, in construction when we'd have inspections, and really the man was going to come out and critique your work. And sometimes this inspection has to happen this day, and it has to pass because we've got all of these things scheduled, and you're thinking, I don't want to be the one that holds it all up. So you're nervous and you're concerned. And the inspector comes, and then when he would approve it and sign the card, there would be a relief. And I can imagine as Moses is being inspected by God, and they offer it to the Lord, and what did the Lord do? The glory of the Lord filled it. And it had to be just a piece to his heart, a job well done according to the desires of God. And so this was the sanctuary that God had commanded Moses to build. But the thing about it was, it was just a copy or it was just a shadow. It was just a picture and not an exact, it wasn't the exact dwelling place of God. There was something that was better in the heavens. When you click on your computer, you turn your computer on, and let's just say you've saved a Word document. You don't know of all the things that your computer is doing behind the scenes. Matter of fact, they've made it pretty easy for us. They put icons on the desktop. Now that icon, that's not the file. That's not the place where your document is. It's just a passageway. It's just a it's just a picture, it's a shadow of it. And it's through that that you enter that icon, you double-click on the icon, that you're able to get what you're looking for. And that's the idea of this tabernacle. It was an icon, but you had to enter in, and you had to enter in wholeheartedly. But as you entered in, you would receive what you're looking for as far as this relationship with God. Verses 3 through 6. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Remember, Jesus was of the line of Judah. He wasn't a Levite, so he could not be part of the Levitical uh, priesthood, although he is the fulfillment of it. Verse 5 who served the copy in the shadow, or the icons, of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain, the place where Moses received the law. But now he has ordained a more excellent ministry, as much as he also uh, he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So Jesus is the great high priest. He's offered two things, sacrifices and gifts. Sacrifices, sacrifice which was necessary for the doing away of our sins. We are covered by the blood. When we say covered by the blood, that means covered by the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But also offering gifts. Gifts, 
Gifts are just those things of appreciation based upon what God has done. Your gifts to God along these lines could just simply be worship. They could be prayers. They could be giving it in an offering, giving of your time and your energy. Whatever it might be, it's just the giving to the Lord. And it's our great high priest that, that represents these things before the throne of the Father. Why is that necessary? Because I can never give to God in perfection. I can never do that. I may, I may have a desire to do that, and that's all I really need, but I can never give in, to God in perfection. But as I give through this great high priest, as I give to Jesus Christ, it's because of the grace of God that my gifts are acceptable at the throne of God. And so I rejoice that I am represented there by my Lord. Now, he's entering into this concept of a new covenant, which is going to be something quite confusing to an unbelieving Jew, and still they're trying to figure out even a believing Jew. Again, look at verse 6. It says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry as much as he is also mediator of a better. When he says better, he means more serviceable or more user-friendly, if you will, covenant, which is established on better, more serviceable or user-friendly promises. Now, verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Now, there's things in my life that I just don't need new of. I don't need a new house. I like my house. I'm completely satisfied with my house. Got a lot of memories in my house. For me, my house works. I don't need a new car. I like my car. I appreciate my car. My car works for me. It's good. I got a wife. I don't need a new wife. I got a good wife. I'm happy with the wife that I have they're all good. I got some grandchildren staying with me right now. I don't need to train them or trade them for others. I'm very happy with them. Now, as far as my computer, you always want a new computer. The genius of Apple, we always want the new and the better iPhone, although there was nothing wrong with the previous. Now, if you're content with something and it works for you, there's no need for the better. But the opposite is true then good is better. If you're not happy, if you're not satisfied, if it's not working for you, then yes, then new is better. The writer now goes to Scripture to prove his point in that God told the Jews some 600 years previous that a change was coming, and they should have been ready for that change. It's what caused the Lord Jesus Christ to cry at his triumphal entry because although they were saying Hosanna, they knew the same people that were yelling Hosanna later on that were going to say, crucify him, crucify him, and it broke the Lord's heart. We can be warned but not always ready. Remember a few years ago, they were switching from analog TV to digital TV, and they told everybody with the old dinosaur TVs that if you had one of those, you had to get a little box. Well, there came that day, and they kept saying, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, and people weren't prepared for it. And then all of a sudden, they're sitting down to watch TV, and they couldn't watch TV, and they were very upset, and there was a big uproar about that. Hey, we told you it was coming, but they just simply weren't prepared. And so what the writer is going to be doing, again, writing to the Jewish mind, he's going to be quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31. So again, verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
Now, it's important to understand that first, that he's talking about the two. If you remember, there was a division in Israel. There was a division between the northern kingdom, which was called the nation of Israel, ten tribes, and then the southern kingdom of Judah, which included Benjamin and Judah. And so now he's talking about his ministry to them all, because his ministry is to all of Israel. So he's not wanting to isolate Judah. He's not wanting to isolate the northern kingdom of Israel. This is inclusive of them all. I'm going to make a new covenant. So why is this new covenant better than the old? Well, working from the Old Testament, we're going to close out the service here today with eight reasons why it is so. Eight reasons why the new covenant far surpasses the old covenant. The first reason why the new is better is just simply because God said. That should be good enough. We could pray and we could go home early right now. But sometimes that's not good enough for us or maybe demand more evidence, whatever it might be. But the first is, is because God said, again, verse 8, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, where did he find the fault? He didn't find the fault in the covenant. He found fault, verse 8, finding fault with them. The idea is they couldn't keep the covenant. This is impossible. I can give you the rules and what's necessary to be part of Calvary Chapel, Ontario, but if you're unable to do the rules, then it's just simply not going to do you any good. It's just always going to be beyond you. To be right with God, if I can't follow through in perfection, it's always going to be beyond me. And so the new is better because it's God's plan. And again, it's been God's plan since the beginning of time. We must remember that God is sovereign, and because of the sovereignty of God, we are to be responsible. In Romans chapter 9, verses 20 through 21, But indeed, old man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor, another for dishonor? Speaks of the sovereignty of God and the will of God to do as he desires. Isaiah 43, verses 18 through 19. Do not remember the former things, nor consider things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the deserts speaking of the time of the coming of Messiah, this new covenant. So the passing of the old to the new should not be a strange thing to the Jewish mind or even to the Gentile reader because God said that this was going to happen 600 years before it happened. Last year, 2016, we went through verse by verse the, uh, the book of Isaiah. And we saw all of the rich prophecies, again, delivered hundreds of years before Messiah that fit Messiah to the T, fit Messiah perfectly. God said these things were going to happen, and these things happen. The second reason the new is better than the old is because it's radically different. If I give you something new and it's the same as the old, then really, what difference does it make? If the next iPhone is the same as the previous iPhone then why would you buy it? I mean, people still will because they're just weird, but why would you really buy it if it doesn't offer you anything new or radically different? Look at verse 9. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. 
If I called you up today and told you, come to church tonight and I'm going to give you a new car, you would probably be pretty excited about it. But then you come and you look and it's this old beaten down jalopy. I thought you were going to give me a new car. Well, it is new. It's new to you. And so, you know, really, it's just something that, well, I've got an old beaten down car. I don't need another old beaten down car. I was thinking that it was going to be something brand new. And that's what Jesus is saying. This isn't just new to you. This is something that is going to be completely new that we know is going to alter all of humanity. I remember one day I was sitting in my office and this man called and wanted to donate a car to the church. And I'm thinking, this is great. Matter of fact, I knew somebody who was struggling and needed a car. And I was just thinking, man, this is an answer to prayer. But then, over the years, the Lord's given me the, the, the knowledge of the necessity of discernment. Now, so what kind of car is it? And he told me, how many miles does it have? And it had like 400,000 miles on it. Okay, um, and I specifically asked him, will it pass smog? And he says, no, that's why I'm getting rid of it. And I'm thinking, he's given us his piece of junk so he can write it off as a tax. He didn't go to our church. And if it was you who called us that day, then shame on you. (laughs) But really what he was doing is he was trying to transfer headaches and then profit off of it. Now, we want new. Not that we want new cars, but we want new in the sight of the Lord because we know the old didn't work, but the new... The new is better. The new is better from our perspective because through the Jew, it came to the Gentile and it landed at our, at our uh, doorstep. The third reason the new is better than the old is because of the progression of a promise. The progression of a promise. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. He's speaking of the fulfillment this time, more than likely the millennial age, this time that has yet to come, but this progression is a promise that is going to blossom into something that is just amazing. We as Gentiles are to be the beneficiaries of this covenant, but the covenant is to Israel. The covenant has always been to Israel. God's promises to Israel of the past have not gone away. God is still doing this work that's going to come to fulfillment in the time of tribulation and then after that in the millennial age. If God did away with the old and abandoned Israel, then there would be a lot of promises unfulfilled and God would not be true to his word. But God's promises are still going to come to fruition, but we have this better pathway that is seen. In Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 18, and if some of the branches were broken off, he's speaking of the Jews, he's speaking to Gentiles, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in amongst them, speaking of the church, and with them because became partakers of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, speaking of the roots that were grounded in the promises of God. He says, do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. God's rich history through Israel, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and continues, that continues, to be worked out even today. The fourth reason that the new is better than the old, it's not built upon the law. Again, verse 9, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers. God's favor in Old Testament times was based upon a strict adherence to his code of rules. 
rules that man could not keep. So once again, during vacation Bible school, we were teaching our kids in, in one of the classes, the Ten Commandments. And it's my understanding that a majority of the kids memorized the Ten Commandments. I'm just thinking, if we gave a test here today, how many of the adults in this room would know the Ten Commandments? It's a good thing to know, but not necessary for salvation. There will not be a test to get into heaven. But it doesn't matter. It's not about the keeping of the Ten Commandments, although you won't be able to keep the Ten Commandments. It's 613 commandments. Now, if you have a hard time memorizing Ten Commandments because you need to do those commandments to maintain a relationship with the Lord, how much harder would it be to memorize 613 commandments in order to have a right relationship with God? It would be borderline impossible. I imagine if your salvation was based upon it, you would learn the 613, but would you really ever be able to keep the 613? And so this new covenant is not based upon the law. God's favor in the New Testament is based upon his grace. Look at Romans. Let me get over there. Romans chapter 3 verses 19 through 20. And now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified by his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. It's by the grace of God that we have been justified through Jesus Christ's atoning death upon the cross. The fifth reason that the new is better than the old, it's built upon the heart and not the deed. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. John chapter 4, verse 23 through 24, Jesus said, Those who will worship me are going to worship in spirit, and it's talking about their personality, and in truth. They're going to worship me with their hearts. You know, we use that term, give your heart to Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Give the totality of who you are to God. Now, when you give the totality of who you are to God, you're giving in all of your imperfections, but he knows that. He understands that. That's why you've been justified. You've been now looked upon somebody just as if they've never sinned. The sixth reason the new is better than the old, it's built upon relationship. Verse 11, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me and the least of them to the greatest. So again, this is speaking of the future, but there's going to be that group that has this knowledge that we are children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. See, whatever is internal is personal and we will all have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. Seventh, the seventh reason the new is better than the old is because it completely cleanses. Verse 7, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Just take a minute to dwell upon that. Did you ever do that? Did you ever meditate upon God's Word? What was just said and really give it an intense thought? God is saying... I will remember your sins no more. As I'm standing before God, there's not going to be a sin of mine that is going to come to his mind. Now, I can forgive you, but again, I'm having to forgive 
and still remember, overcome myself to truly forgive you and not hold whatever it is that you did against me against you. But God, he forgives. What does that mean? He supernaturally forgives. He chooses to remember no more. This is a supernatural work by God for those who are in Christ. And the benefit for that is is that we can boldly come into the throne room of God. Looking at our sister Nora, when she closed her eyes here, she was in the throne room of God. And she didn't have to be ashamed. She she didn't have to be worried, and she didn't have to be concerned. Because how many times have you said to somebody, or maybe somebody said to you, I remember you. I remember that time when, and fill in the blank of whatever dastardly deed you did. Well, that's not going to happen. Because, see, if that might happen as you go into the throne room of God, you don't boldly enter in. You're waiting to be hit by the thunder of the... I was going to say, or hit by lightning. Hit by lightning. I guess you don't get hit by thunder. You get hit by lightning. But anyway, you know what I mean. You're, You're just waiting for judgment to come upon you. But God has supernaturally chosen to remember your sins no more. Meditate upon that. As you leave that, just think about that. Everything that you did contrary to God, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, God has chosen to remember no more. That's why we can go out there and share our faith, and somebody can say, well, I'm a good person, and then when you're able to convince them that they're not, you've got some hope to give them in God and what God has done and what God is able to do. And so here, this new covenant, it completely cleanses. And then lastly, the eighth reason, eighth reason, the new is better because the new is now. It's for us here in this place today. Verse 13, and that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. So what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. So he's speaking to the Jews. It's obsolete. It's no good anymore. Matter of fact, it's probably only going to last, or it is going to last. History bears it out. Only about two or four more years later, God's going to allow Rome to come in and to destroy the whole thing. And so obsolete, and it's being done away with. For me and my Catholicism, for me it was obsolete. It was obsolete in that it was good pre-Christianity, but I never came to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then when I came into a relationship with Jesus Christ, there was no turning back. There was no turning back because the new that I have found is better than the old. God used the old in my life. As I said, it was good for me. It was good pre-Christianity, but I did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ through the old. But then God did this new work. So, therefore, if anyone's in Christ... He's a new creation. Behold, all things have passed. All things have become new. Now take it personally into your life. The person you used to be, they're gone. They're done away with. If God has chosen to remember your sins no more, then God remembers the old man no more. You become a new creation in Christ. The The slate has been wiped clean. Remember that unpayable debt that you couldn't pay? Now it's been reconciled through Jesus Christ. And this is the great hope that we have within us. The writer here, he's trying to convey that to the Jewish mind. The pastor today is trying to convey it to the Gentile mind, that we would understand the magnitude of all that God has done and all that God continues to do in our life. Not for a license to continue to sin. Liberty's been given us, but let us not use liberty for an opportunity for the flesh. But may we rejoice in all that God has done and continues to do, not only in our lives, but also through our lives and into the lives of others.
Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you have given us this better covenant, this which, Lord, after the old was put to rest, and we can now examine for the past 2,000 years that there is no temple that has been rebuilt. It's because, Father, what you have destroyed stays destroyed until you have a reason or purpose for it. And so, Father, we just thank you that you have given us your truths today through your word. I pray, Father, that you would make this message real and applicable to the lives that are there. I pray for the born-again believer, Lord, that we would gain confidence in our salvation and be strengthened on that road to maturity. Lord, I pray for any unbelievers here today that they would see the magnitude of what transpired upon the cross. I pray, Father, that they would see themselves in the reality of who they are. Can't keep even one of the Ten Commandments. How could I possibly be right in the sight of God? It was God's intent to use the law to show the sinful nature of mankind because it's God's desire that you would turn from your wicked ways and that you would turn to him and that you would find that in Christ there is simply no condemnation. And so, Father, I just lift up this church as a whole and pray that you would speak to all of us here this day, that, again, making this real and applicable, that, Father, if there's any changes we need to make in our lives, if there's a different direction that we need to go, set that before us, Lord, and and give us, Father, a passion to follow that way. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We just lift it to you, and we just give you the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? A couple of things.